0: Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to the Book of John, chapter ten. John chapter ten, and um, I am so thankful that at sixteen years old, that God gave me life. I'm so thankful that uh, when I received Christ as my Savior, uh, He didn't just make my life better; He gave me life, and uh, I am so thankful for that because before that, I was as dry bones. Uh, I was as Lazarus in the tomb, could do nothing to change my state until the Son of God, God Himself, spoke life um, and, and revived life in me and restored me. And I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that you know Christ as your Savior today. I pray that He has done that for you. And as Ephesians 2 talks about, I pray that He has made you alive in Him. And if that is not the case, if you have not received Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, my prayer, our prayer as a church, is that before you leave this building this morning, uh, that you would have, have knowledge of his love for you, of his grace, which can cover any and all sin, his, his gospel, which is that he died on the cross for your sin, was buried and rose again, and that by putting your faith and trust in him, you can know him forever and have eternal life, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. And so if you do not know Christ this morning, I pray that you would allow God to speak to you this morning through his word. And I pray that you'd be convicted, as only the Holy Spirit can convict us. And so, uh, John chapter 10, uh, we're finishing up our series, Reclaimed. Uh, This is the fourth and final week of our series, and uh, I pray that it has encouraged you. I pray that it's challenged you. I know that I've been challenged just in preparing this series for us, um, and we have covered a lot. Of ground. Uh, we started off the first week, many weeks ago, discovering that when we receive Christ as our Savior, uh, we are reclaimed to right standing before God. We are restored to our right standing, our right and true identity in God. And so I hope you understand that this morning, that when you were saved by Christ, you were purposeless and then giving purpose. Now, you were living in some things and giving yourself to some things, then you were saved and Christ reclaimed you, and put you to a holy purpose, a divine purpose. I pray that you know that for yourself. And I use the reference to different shows and different things nowadays, where people will take uh, things that are just dilapidated, things that are just just falling apart, and they'll repurpose those things and make beautiful pieces of furniture, or maybe even in your home, you have uh, repurposed barn wood that you've used as a wall uh, covering. And so there's all these different things out there that we can see as an examples of this. But in Christ, we were living purposeless, and now we have purpose. We were just wandering aimlessly in life with no clear purpose, or other than the purposes we created for ourselves, which usually, even when we achieve them, we're left feeling empty. But in Christ, he has reclaimed us. Uh, We have been given purpose in this life. And I pray that you have been challenged to be reminded of that, to know you have purpose in this life. You are not an accident. You didn't just, oops, and you were here. There is a divine plan and purpose over your life. And so many people say, well, what is it? Tell me what it is, and I'll do it. I can tell you the basic will of God for your life is to enjoy him, and to worship Him, to live in fellowship with Him, and to make disciples for Him. That is your overall purpose of your life. Now, what that plays out to look like in your individual life, where you live, the job you do, the career you have, all of those things, I don't know all of that. But wherever you are in Christ, you can make a disciple for Christ. Wherever you are in Christ, you can enjoy Him and His presence in your life. Wherever you are in life, you can praise Him and honor Him in the things that we say and do. And we've covered a lot of ground in this reclaimed series. Uh, We started talking about, again, once we are reclaimed, that now we can live the reclaimed life. We can now live the abundant life. John chapter 10 reveals to us that He wants to give us life and life more abundantly. And we might say, well, what does that look like? Is that just a fat bank account? Right? Is that just always getting what I want from God? Is that always being healthy and wealthy and successful in human eyes? It has nothing to do with those things, to be honest. And some of those things may come into your life, and some of those things may go out of your life. But the abundant life He speaks of in John ten ten, He reveals to us in John ten nine. It's not our text for the sermon this morning, but to kind of get us thinking along these lines. He says in John chapter ten verse nine, "I am the door. By me." That's through Christ. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. You know what the abundant life is in Christ? It's first being saved. Amen. Some of you are excited about your salvation. It's being saved. Amen. I always think this in my own life. When I react to the gospel in a very apathetic way, it's because I've somewhat forgotten how messed up I really was and really am. When I lose my patience with God, I have to remind myself how patient God was with me when I was rejecting and rebelling against him. So see, sometimes I think we let the reality of the gospel, well, I've heard that, I've seen that, I've been there, I've done that. That's great. But every time we respond to the gospel, and I'm not saying that's what you just did, I was just using this as an illustration of that. Have we forgotten? Have we kind of marred over the fact of our reality of our sin? Like how jacked up we really were? and are before Christ. And even in Christ, we still struggle. And we can live the abundant life, and don't dumb it down, don't make it so shallow that it's about stuff or circumstances. And it's so much better than that. It supersedes those things that we think it is in our life because we are saved in Christ. Then it says we can come in and out and find pasture I said it before in that first week. This is a earthly fulfillment of Psalm 23. David's famous psalm, Psalm 23, that he makes me to lie down in a green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. All these, this idea of peace and comfort with God. Christ fulfilled that for us, earthly speaking, in this life, we get to find pasture and peace. But one day, we will be with him forever, and we will find the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 23 when we are in his presence and at perfect rest and perfect peace and perfect joy. But in this life, we can actually enjoy that taste of the abundant life. We can enjoy the presence of God. Also, as we kind of unpacked living the reclaimed life, we realize that we can reclaim community in uh, the church, We can reclaim community in the church and we can also reclaim our testimony in this world. We reclaim community in the church and we reclaim our testimony in the world. Community is vital for your Christian health. We need each other. We need each other. How often does the Bible talk about one another? When we pray for one another, we serve one another, we love one another, we minister to one another, we need the one another's. We need each other. So many people think, no, I just need Jesus. Well, you need Jesus first and far above anything else. But if, if you just needed Jesus, he wouldn't have given us the church. But he says, I give you the church because you are the body of Christ. You are going to connect to one another, have community. The greatest example of community on planet Earth should be the church. Because we have a connection that goes deeper than anything physical or surface. We have a spiritual connection through Christ. We are one in Christ. We share a common salvation. So our community should be so much tighter than somebody that just shares a surface connection or even a hobby or an interest that they get along with someone. We need to reclaim community, but also we need to reclaim our testimony in this world. We spoke last week that the things we say, do, and advocate do not just represent us individually, but represent Christ and his church. Fair or unfair, when you say something to someone that knows you're a Christian, it automatically is connected to Christ. Talk about a weight. You want to talk about a burden to carry. And I'm not saying we should feel burdened down, but we should feel a healthy weight to this. It's okay to realize the things I say and do and advocate reflect on my Savior. I always use this as an illustration. When I was in college, I attended Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. Go Patriots. Not the New England Patriots, the BBC Patriots, okay? There's a big difference. One is spiritual, one is not. Anyway, just kidding. Um, so uh, when I was in college, I had to take a, a time off. Uh, me and the, uh, the guy that ran the finances at BBC, we had a couple conversations. Seems as though when you can't pay your bill... They don't want you to come back. I don't get this. We loved having you. When you can bring us that money, you can come on back, okay? But I had to go to uh, Mott Community College for two classes so I could keep my uh, student loans. Praise God for student loans. Not really. But anyway, keep those going. And so I took uh, summer classes at Mott Community College in Lapeer. Now, I'm not saying all the classes at Mott are this way. I'm sure they're not. I'm not saying all the classes at Mott Community College in Lapeer are this way. I'm sure they're not. I took psychology, and I took, uh, what was that class called? Interpersonal Multicultural Communications. Okay. Psychology. Sandra actually took some classes at Mott before she went to Eastern. And so we were, uh, I think we might have been dating then. And so I told her what I was thinking. She said, oh, you're going to have this teacher. I said, yeah. So we started talking. I was telling her stuff we were doing in class, and she's like, wait, you didn't have to do this? You didn't have to do this? You didn't have to do this? I was like, nope, we didn't do any of that. I just show up. We talk for a little bit. I take a test. I go home. She was so mad. She's like, that's not at all what they do during the normal school year, but I took it during the summer. And you know what professors at colleges don't want to do during the summer? The same thing you don't want to do. They don't want to work, so keep it easy. Okay? So I love psychology. The other class, the interpersonal multicultural communications class, was what I like to call basically group therapy 101. We literally sat in a circle and talked about our cultural feelings and expressions. Now, there was some cool things we talked about in this class. I'll be honest. There was some really cool stuff that got brought out. But early on in the class, and I mentioned this before, it was discovered because they ask you to talk about yourself. Like, introduce yourself, what are your interests, blah, 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 blah. First days of class, I was wearing my BBC sweatshirt. And of course, you know, it just says, uh, it said Baptist Bible College right on it. And so kids are like, oh, so you're a Christian. In your Baptist, and you're going to college for this. So you're now the advocate and the spokesman for all of Christianity in this classroom. Also, any questions we have about Jewish heritage, we're somehow going to think you can answer too. <laughs> any question about the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, any denominational question, you are now, as a sophomore at BBC, going to represent all of Christendom in this class. And I realized very quickly, as unfair... And unrealistic and silly an expectation as that was, I had so many conversations with people just because they knew I was a Christian. One girl told me, she said, yeah, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. I went to a church when I was 16. All I know is I walked in the door. They were jumping around, barking like dogs, hooping and hollering and gibbering, jabbering. I didn't know what was going on. I got so scared, I ran out the back door. Thought about Paul's words in First Corinthians. If you come in acting that way, they're going to think you're nuts. Another woman told me, older woman, probably at this time, I was in my early 20s. She had to be in her early 40s, mid-40s. She leaned over, whispered, and said, I just want you to know, I'm a Christian too. Okay? Are we being recorded? Like, is big brother involved? What's going on? She said, well, I just think it's more of a personal thing. It's not really to let out, you know. She said, I have a closet-type religion. I just kind of keep it to myself. Okay, whatever. I had so many conversations with people. The professor didn't really care for me. We had some interesting conversations, which was good. <laughs> Listen, seriously, I'm being really honest here. I'm not trying, that wasn't sarcasm. It was awesome because this woman instantly treated me with defense, instantly standoffish. And the more I got to know why, it was because every Christian influence she had up to that point was attacking her and her beliefs and her thinking. She had never had an actual conversation with a believer that didn't involve them calling her names, insulting her, making fun of her and her beliefs and thinking. So because of this, I was allowed to give a presentation on any cultural people group in the world I wanted to talk about. I went to Ron and Debbie Abrams' house when they were staying down in Rochester and he explained all about tribal people. This is a people group that he and his wife have ministered to for a long time. They're just coming out of the field. Am I cutting in and out? Okay, we'll just use the pulpit, unless it's a battery thing and you want to change them. Am I good now? Good now. Hear me? Okay, I'm just going to keep going and we'll see how it goes. Um, If it just explodes on my ear, just go home. Um, (laughs) But I got to meet with the Abrams for about two hours, and he gave me all of his PowerPoint presentations, all of his literature that he had on this people group, all of the stuff about how they're translating the Bible into their language, Now they have a complete Bible. They didn't at this point. They had books, Ephesians and uh, 1 Corinthians and a couple others. And I was able to give like a 25-minute presentation about this people group because it was a cultural class. At the end of this class or this presentation, you can open up for questions. And the professor, the whole time I'm talking, she's just getting more and more angry because I'm talking about these are missionaries that are going to this. Now, I never want to preach the gospel in the presentation I wanted to make sure I didn't do that because I do not want somebody to, oh, this is just a Jesus thing. I just talked about the people group. I talked about their culture, their food, their everything. And then I talked about the missionaries that were, this is how I got the information. And one person, the first question that was asked was, a, a, I think it was a guy in the class said, why would someone do that? Why would somebody leave America and all the comforts that we have and go live in that environment and that area, suffer all of that for over 20 years? Like, what would be the point of doing that? And they're not gaining anything financially. And I was like, that's a great question. They believe, and I gave a presentation of the gospel. You know what's funny is, in that class, as unfair as it was for me to be the face of Christianity for eight weeks or whatever it was, six, eight weeks, I'm so thankful that God allowed me to go through that. Why? Because it's helping me even to this day to realize, man, we have to be so careful. What we say, what we do, how we interact with other people. I know, listen, I know that people in their sin will frustrate you. I get our culture. I get all of that. I understand where we're coming from. But if we're not careful, we're going to alienate people from the gospel, not because the gospel is a stumbling block, but because you and I are the stumbling block. Not because they tripped over Jesus, but they tripped over us. And we actually hindered them from getting to Jesus because we wanted to argue some minor point instead of taking them to the gospel. And we have to reclaim our testimony. That's just the introduction. Okay. Let's see how far we go. So, uh, John chapter 10. That's where we're going to go. must have been of God because I would never just randomly speak, you know, or have any kind of fluff in my messages. That would never happen. So, John chapter 10 and verse 17. Because as I was wrapping up the series, I want to look at Uh, One more area of our lives that we can understand that through Christ can be reclaimed for his glory. Not just community, not just our testimony, but also our marriages. Our marriages. We need to talk about reclaiming our marriages. John 10 and verse 17. Therefore, does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, here we read of a powerful sacrifice that Christ was willing and did make for those that trust in him. He laid down his life for us as well as took his life up again. When we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are saved right now and also will be saved when we see God face to face. We are cleansed now and will remain cleansed by the power of Christ's sacrifice through the rest of our life and when we see him face to face. And the question is this, that's great, Pastor, but why did you reference that in relation to marriage? Why did you go there instead of going to another passage? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question. I appreciate you sharing your heart honestly this morning and asking that question so that we can go over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I, I want to read just a couple of verses here. And as we go to Ephesians 5, I want to see the connection back to what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Ephesians 5 and verse 21. So Ephesians 5 and verse 21. Verse 21 is one of the verses that usually is not read with this passage, but I want to make sure we include it for context and understanding. He says here in verse 21, writing to the church of Ephesus, the apostle Paul writes this, "...submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, for he that loves his wife loves himself. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we ask that you would apply these truths to our lives. We ask that we would leave changed than the way we came in, We ask that we'd be fully submitted to you and submitted to one another in a way that honors you. Father, I pray that as we just start to unpack this idea of marriage, start to unpack this idea of reclaiming marriage for your glory, I ask that you'd give us wisdom, guidance, and direction. I ask that we would realize that our marriages as Christians, as followers of Christ, is meant to stand out in this world. It's intended to be different than what's around us. Not so that we are glorified or we are praised, but that you are honored and you are praised. And so, Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for um, your love for us. Thank you for giving yourself for us. When we were unlovable, you chose to love us with the greatest act of sacrifice. Father, bless now this time and bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatest picture on planet earth, of the glorious gospel is found in Christian marriage. It is this earthly illustration that we see the relationship also between Christ and the church. So here, the Apostle Paul is telling us there's a couple of things that marriage, earthly marriage, is meant to be a picture of. Paul's amazing intellect, as intelligent as Paul was, knowing all that he knew of the Old Testament, having personal revelation from God himself, decides, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to put marriage as the greatest earthly picture of the love of Christ for the church, meaning salvation, the gospel, and the relationship between Christ and his church. And it's an amazing, amazing reality that we see this. If you are here, by the way, and I, I don't have to say this, but I want to say this. If you're here, by the way, and you're in a different stage, a different area of life, so maybe you're younger and not married maybe you're a little older and not married by the way if you're older and not married and never been married nothing's wrong with you okay there's nothing saying you have to get married so i've talked to people who are later on in their years maybe in their 40s and never married and just start to really wonder something must be really wrong with me no there's nothing wrong with you you just keep walking after christ and following him don't let someone else pressure you into thinking you need to fit some norm or some mold you follow christ If you're here and you're a young man or a young woman, maybe in your young 20s or somewhere in there and you're contemplating this idea of marriage, I pray you'd understand this message is for you. And if you're here this morning and you're in a different stage altogether, maybe you were married. Maybe that ended of your choosing. Maybe it didn't end of your choosing. Maybe you were just kind of a a victim to the circumstance. I pray that you would know this message is not intended to make anyone feel awkward or, or anything like that. It's just to make you aware of the love and the grace that Christ has for his church and he has for you. But I want to challenge those of us that are married. Uh, I challenge those of us who desire to get married, but also to those who are currently married. We need to reclaim our marriages. Uh, we need to be aware of what our marriages are saying about our Savior and about his church. So the question comes, if God intended Christian marriage to be the picture of the gospel, what has changed today when we look at marriages in the church Let me ask it this way. Do we see a picture of Christ's love and sacrifice in the marriages in Christians' lives? Do we see a picture of love and sacrifice in the pictures of these Christian marriages? Or do we see a contractual agreement that hinges on egocentric people complaining when their needs are not met fully? Do we see a picture of love and sacrifice or do we see two very egocentric people that are complaining all the time because their individual needs are not met by the other person? And that just stirs up conflict and division even in the marriage. I believe to reclaim marriages in this world today, in our culture, in our lives as followers of Christ, I believe we need to first and foremost stop blaming the culture. To reclaim marriage, we need to stop blaming the culture for the problems in marriage. Let me put it this way. We hear it all the time. That because of the changes in our society in the area of marriage, therefore it's affecting marriage, and therefore the family is breaking down. And now, what's the reality? It is true that in our world, for a long time now, by the way, not since just June of 2015, which some of you know at that month and year speaking to you, but not just since June of 2015 has the marriage or the family and the idea of marriage been under attack, but a long time now. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you see a married couple, Adam and Eve. And what did the enemy attack? Not their integrity or their character. He attacked them by dividing them, husband and wife, and attacking the word of God. And by the way, the enemy's plan has not changed. He's still attacking families. And I understand that his, his attacks are real. I understand that marriages and family in our world today are under attack. But that's not new. And that's not something we should be surprised with. And it's definitely not an excuse. You see, the principles of Christian marriage in our world today will stand in stark contrast to the cultural norms we see around us. But again, should this surprise us? Should it surprise us that the cultural norms are different than what Christian marriage should look like. No, it shouldn't. The cultural norms will fall away from biblical standards. This is the reason that two Christians really should be the ones that are getting married. That two believers should be getting married, not a believer and an unbeliever. Because, you see, the, the problem comes into play pretty quickly when somebody's saved and somebody's not saved, and they join in marriage, and now they're not Equally yoked. The Bible uses the term, Paul says in Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked. That means for someone to be in Christ and someone not to be in Christ and then to get married. Instantly there's division. Instantly there's conflict. Because the cultural understanding of marriage and the biblical understanding of marriage are starkly different. They're completely different. Motivations are different. But let me ask it this way just because the cultural norms are not following biblical standards, Just because society is changing, there's things happening in the area of marriage in our country that we don't agree with, does that mean that two individual people are are unable to live in a healthy and Christ-like marriage? Because now that two men or two women can get married, is that why a husband and wife argue and fight? Just because now two men or two women can get married in our country today, is that an excuse or a reason why my wife can't get along with Christ? Of course not. We can disagree with the stance our world takes on marriage. We should stand for the principles in Christian marriage since it is God Himself that instituted marriage. But we cannot shift the blame away from our choices and actions and put it on the culture and say somehow we're free of that because, well, marriage is breaking down in our world today because of this or that. I can disagree with what our culture decides to do. I can disagree with what our court system says is now okay or not okay. I can disagree with that. I can even speak out against that in an appropriate sense in an appropriate forum. But I cannot use that as an excuse to say why this marriage between my wife and I is not falling in line with biblical standards. Do you know, I honestly think, this is just my opinion, in our world today, I don't think it's those sinful people doing all these things that's affecting the family the most and tearing down the family the most. I honestly think it's two Christian individuals that aren't fully surrendered and submitted to Christ living in a Christian marriage that are falling into sin that are doing all these. I think that's causing more harm. I think that's doing more damage. I mean, if you want to stand for Christian marriage, then be committed solely to your spouse, not to anyone else. That includes flirting with someone. That includes looking at things you shouldn't be looking at on the computer. It's all included in that. See, that's what the Bible lays forth. But we can easily just go, well, yeah, but it's the world, it's society, it's... No. We have to stop blaming the culture and take responsibility for ourselves. Paul encourages the church in Ephesians chapter 5, he says he talks to the husbands and the wives. He talks to the husbands and the wives to do what they can do. Hear this now. He doesn't tell the wife to make the husband do this or that, and he doesn't tell the husband to make the wife do this or that. Did you get that? There's a lot of that in that statement, wasn't there? That was great. I always love when that happens. That was a Hamlin right there, but you, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, a couple of Hamelins in there. Isn't it amazing that Paul says, wives, and lays out some things they should be doing in Christ. Husbands, and lays out some things they should be doing in Christ. He never tells, okay, husband, go fix your wife. Or wife, go fix your husband. And mean, I see, I, I just, I think what we see in our world today is so many spouses trying to fix the other person. Trying to make the other person. Why? I tell people when I sit down for premarital counseling, I just told someone this morning, my job in premarital counseling to some degree is to scare these two people from wanting to get married. <laughs> Hear me now. I'm just, I'm, that's tongue-in-cheek, but man, it's a huge commitment. I want to make sure these two people know, listen, this is not going to be easy. There's going to be some bumps in the road. we got to understand it's not just about an emotion of love. It's about a commitment of love. Love is not just a feeling, a warm and fuzzy butterfly kind of feeling. Sometimes it is. But sometimes you're going to be like, why are you still here? Like, just, could you just leave? Like, I really would like you to just go, like, and take your underwear off the floor with you. Like, get out. But man, we can't, when we go into marriage, one of the things I say often is I'll say, do you take them just as they are right now, with their strengths and their weaknesses? Do you take them as they are right now with their strengths and their weaknesses? And it's so funny, on the wedding day, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then about five years goes by, maybe five months. And you're like, man, I didn't really know what I was committing to. I didn't know they were going to do that. The toilet paper goes this way, not this way. Man, we need to understand that it's not about trying to fix the other person. It's not about a husband making their wife do this or the wife making the husband do this. Paul addresses to the individual. In this text, we see a couple words we don't really care to see in our culture today. In Ephesians 5, we see that the the Bible encourages submission. Submission. Now, the word submission, just so you know, does not mean slave. It It deals with the order of the home. And both, if you realize it, both husband and wife are in submission to each other as well as to Christ, as we saw in Ephesians 5.21. It's not just wives. Get it figured out and submit to your own husbands. And husbands, you have free rule and reign to do what you want. No, 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 no. Verse 21 says we should be submitted to one another in Christ. Then he starts dealing with the order of the home. The key that I want to stress is that both husbands and wives, as followers of Christ, have an obligation to submit to the Lord first and foremost before they ever try to interact with each other. We should be fully submitted to the Lord first and foremost before we ever interact with each other. That means if a conflict is rising, if emotions are getting high, before you choose to interact with your spouse, take a step back and I'm telling you, spend some time in prayer. Don't just speak and then think. We have to be in submission to the Lord first. Warren Worsby, amazing commentator, said this and I think he said it well. He was a pastor for many, many years. He says this. Most of the marital conflicts I have dealt with as a pastor have stemmed from failure of the husband and or wife to submit to Christ, spend time in his word, and seek to do his will each day. Most of the marital conflicts I have dealt with as a pastor have stemmed from failure of the husband and or wife to submit to Christ, spend time in his word, and seek to do his will each day. Let me ask you a question. How much better would marriages be if Christ was the central figure in that marriage? If his word has a shared and enjoyable resource by both husband and wife? If prayer was a staple among couples, not just a break in case of emergencies resource? What if his word was actually just something that as a couple was commonplace to go to? What if prayer was just something that was just a commonplace resource we went to? And this is, again, where the husband or the wife will think, yes, you're right. My husband or my wife needs to do this or that more. If they did, I would be a better Christian. Yeah, you're right, Pastor. You know, if my husband would just pray more, I'd be so much better off. You know, you're right, if my wife would just read the Bible more, I'd be so much better off. Again, we got to go back to it. What are we talking about? Taking personal responsibility. You know, there's a passage that I've always found amazing. It talks about the idea that if a wife has a question or something they're struggling with about something to do with the Word of God or about God himself, the encouragement is to ask your own husband. To ask your own husband. I don't see that as a negative, by the way. What I see that as is a beautiful relationship between husband and wife. But you know what that does tell me as a husband? It puts a little weight on my shoulders, doesn't it? Here's what the Bible is saying. Sandra should be able to come to me with any Bible question. And I should be either ready with an answer or ready to do some work to find the answer to help us grow together. Now, that doesn't mean that she can't do it on her own. But that's the point. She shouldn't have to do it on her own. She should be able to come to me and me go to her in this equal submission and get into the word of God together. But do you know how many spouses, husbands or wives, maybe don't even feel comfortable sharing what God is showing them in his word with their spouse? They don't even feel it's available to them? That's a tragedy. And again, if you're here and you're younger and not married, I would encourage you be praying for that regard. Look for someone that has an interest in God's word. Look for someone that's interested in the things of God long before you ever get married. If you're here today and you would say, you know what, pastor, I get it. I need to focus on myself. But there is a part of me that wishes my husband or wife would be more interested in things of God. I'm not saying you can't pray to that end. I'm not saying you can't encourage them in the word of God. But we can't take it as far as saying, but they're the reason why I'm not walking with the Lord like I should. We can't do that. We have to look at it as our own personal responsibility. So how do we do this? How do we live this out? How do we make this happen? How do we take the example of Christ's love and his sacrifice for the church and live that out in our marriages and in our lives? Even if you're not married today, how do we live that out in our own life? Well, the first thing we have to do is we individually focus on our own mission. We individually focus on our mission. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 29 as he's dealing with marriage of all different kinds in that chapter. He's dealing with issues of Christians married to Christians, Christians married to non-Christians. What's going to happen next? Uh, Early on in the church, people were getting saved, and some people were getting saved, and all of a sudden now it's a divided home because now there's a Christian and a non-Christian married together, and they're writing to Paul, should we get divorced? Should we separate? What do we do? And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're the Christian, you stay with the unbeliever as long as they will allow you to stay with them because you may be a light and a testimony to them. He's basically saying, don't don't stop now. Keep doing what you're doing. But he says this, but if the unbeliever puts you away or or puts you out and separates from you, you, you're you're free of that. You can't control that. But as long as you can, keep being that Christ-like example. And I want you to think about that because as he's dealing with all these things, he says, when he gets down to the meat of the chapter, he says this in verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. The time is short is short. What does Paul mean? Why does he speak to this idea of time being short in dealing with marriage? I believe he is referring to the reality that life is short, that we don't know when the Lord is going to return and we need to take advantage of every moment we have. In our marriages, to reclaim them, we must not live for them. You want to reclaim your marriage? Don't live for your marriage. But we live for our mission. See, time is short. So, what do we need to focus on? Not our marriage, but our mission. And out of focusing on our mission for Christ, guess what will blossom and benefit our marriage? When I'm more focused on what God has for me in this world, that I'm called, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to make disciples, to make disciples, to be an impact for Christ. Man, when I'm focused on my mission, I'm not gonna fight with my wife. Because I ain't got time for that. We don't have time for conflict. We don't have time to argue. We don't have time to get caught up in all these things of the world. Man, our minds are being renewed because we're focused on our mission. And this is, again, where, depending on where you are in your area of life, if you are married or not married, you have been given a mission from God. So stop worrying about, am I going to get married? Am I going to get married again? What's going to... Man, I understand why that's a concern. I get it. But let's just maybe for a time just put that in the back seat for a second and say, God, what do you have for me right now where I am? What does Paul say? In all things, I've learned to be content, right? In all situations, I'm content. Why? Because he was focused on his mission, he was focused on what God had for him to do. So, my encouragement to you is preach the gospel, live for Christ. Enjoy his presence. Seek him in all things. And I'm promising you, if you are married, it will benefit your marriage. Because guess what? If your spouse doesn't respond in the way they should in Christ, and you're focused on your mission, and you're renewing your mind, and you're in the word of God, and you're in prayer, you're not going to get angry at them. You're not going to lash out at them. You're going to understand, you know what? I need to pray for them because they're just not getting this yet. And that's fine. I need to give them grace. I need to encourage them, but I need to give them grace and not try to control them or make them something. So first, we individually focus on our message, or I mean on our mission. Secondly, we realize the power of the Word in us. We realize the power of the Word in us, the Word of God. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read just a couple verses here. The whole passage would be uh, Colossians 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, That's a parallel to Ephesians 5, verse 21 through Ephesians 6, verse 9. So Colossians 3, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down and read them in their entirety later. Colossians 3, 16 through 4, 1, chapter 4, verse 1. And Ephesians 5, 21, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, are parallel passages. These are going to be similar contexts that Paul's writing to the church. One he writes to the church at Ephesus. One he writes to the church at Colossae. But I want to focus on this passage together. In verse 16, we're going to find our key. And so we're just going to read that one verse. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Verse 17 will read, And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And then you're gonna find he gets into the family structure. He's gonna talk about husbands and wives and children and all these things. And as you're thinking about this, we need to understand that it is important to note That the key in functioning in a way that pleases the Lord in our marriages, in our homes, and in our relationships is to what he says in verse 16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it teach you and admonish you or encourage you or strengthen you to do this or that. And what does he say in verse 17? In whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks. What is he talking about What is the, in everything you do? Do you know what that means in the Greek? Everything you do. It's amazing like that. In everything you do. That means in every conversation with your spouse. That means, by the way, we're not getting into it for time's sake, in every conversation with your children, in every conversation with your grandchildren. See, this is an amazing thing. How do we function in a way that pleases God in all these areas? Man, it can be overwhelming. How do I treat my employees? How do I treat my employer? How do I treat my neighbor? How do I treat my wife? How do I treat my kids? How do I do all things? How do I do all things in the name of Jesus Christ and give thanks for them? Well, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and let it be a foundation Let it be the thing, the source that we go to. We've mentioned this the last few months here. What does he say in John chapter 15? Let my words abide in you. And if my words are abiding in you, then you are my disciples, he says. You see, how do we reclaim our marriages? We focus on our mission and we realize the power of the word of God in us. We cannot do any of the things that lead to a healthy and Christ-like marriage without the right perspective on this life and the understanding that we have all we need through the Spirit of God and His Word. You can't blame society. You can't tell God, well, you didn't give me what I needed. Uh, You didn't equip me for this. He gave you everything you need by giving you His Word and the Holy Spirit of God through Christ. Now, let me say this, because you might think, okay, I just need Jesus and the Bible, and I'm good. I can live a a healthy, Christ-like marriage. That's not all that God has given us, Those are the two keys that we need to live in a healthy marriage to start, lay a foundation. But we don't neglect wisdom from other couples. We don't neglect wisdom from those that have been married longer. We utilize marriage resources and even getting counseling to deal with certain areas if we feel it would be helpful we utilize marriage resources. We read if we can. We, we watch online videos or seminars if there's a marriage speaker that we're listening to that has a biblical perspective on marriage. It doesn't mean we just go, okay, I'm just going to read the Bible. i got the Holy Spirit. I'm good. Yes, that's all you need. But there are so many great resources available that we can look to for additional help and additional wisdom. Do we need them? No, we just need Christ in his word, or Christ in me and his word, and I can live in a healthy way that honors Christ. But why would we neglect these other resources when they're there to help us? So many times people just don't give resources a chance. They don't even listen to those things, and then something happens, and it's almost like now we got to go to the emergency mode, and now we got to get help. And listen to other couples that have been married for longer than you have. It doesn't mean we take everything they say and do everything they say. It's like when Sandra was first married with Anthony. Man, every single woman had some piece of advice eat this with this and that, and this will take care of that nausea, and do this and do that and do this and do that. After like a couple of weeks, I was like, please stop talking to women in our church at all. Because she'd come home so confused. I'm supposed to eat Ritz crackers and drink this and go to bed on my side and sleep with my foot in the air. It's just crazy. Marriage can be the same way. Listen, sometimes with great intentions, other couples try to encourage and they end up just discouraging. Sometimes they give you a plan that worked for them, but maybe it's not going to work for you. So we don't take every single thing and run with it. We use discernment, obviously, but don't neglect those resources. Again, if God has put people in this church that can encourage you and help you, why would we not go to them? I love sitting with couples. Many of you know Don and June Herbert. Now, when they attended here, uh, they had just, one of the, one of the last times I, I was with them, they had just celebrated 50 years of marriage. 50 years. I can't even, I mean, I know Sandra's just like, I hope because it's such a blessing to be married to him. But you know what was great? It was Just sitting with them. And I remember one time I asked them, I said, guys, how'd you do it? How did you get to 50 years? And June just said, well, they weren't all good years. And that, to me, that spoke volumes. Because you see them at church and think, oh, they're like the perfect couple. Like, look at them. They're just great. You know, they've been married for all these years, and they just get along great, and they know each other, and they care for each other. It's great. But then she kind of alluded to the fact, and I don't remember all the details, but basically she named a span of years. I think it was like a 10-year gap. She said, yeah, year, you know, whatever, 26 to 36 or whatever it was. Those years weren't that good. They were really tough. But then she said this, but we committed to push through them. And you hear what I said there? We committed. Now, maybe you were in a marriage where you tried to commit and you tried to do all that God wanted you to do, but it was a solo act and it just didn't work. You need to stop carrying that burden of guilt. You did all you could do. But if you are married today and, or you're going to get married one day, decide to push through. Decide that it's worth it. And I'm so glad I listened to them. And I love talking to them about their experiences. And so get with a married couple that's older, that's been through some things. And it's not always going to be the same as yours. And it's not always going to work out the same way. And again, use discernment. But man, utilize those resources. So let me ask you questions one in closing as we wrap it up with prayer. Are you reclaiming your marriage for the glory of Christ? Are you realizing that your purpose in this world is greater than your spouse, greater than your family? Again, those that are married here today, please realize the time is short. And you were created for a time as this, to be about the mission of reaching others for Christ. Obviously, to those who do not know Christ, don't make the mistake of thinking church will fix your marriage only giving ourselves over to Christ and representing, or repenting, sorry, of our sins will change us inwardly and that will change outwardly our families and our marriage. And so here's what I want to do. Would you bow your heads right to where you are during the time of invitation? Here's what I want to ask you to do during this time of invitation. Maybe you want to come and pray. Maybe you, you were in a marriage situation and you did all you could do and it just didn't go the way you wanted it to. And maybe you're in a marriage situation and you made choices that you look back on and you regret. And you know you really didn't do all that you could do. Wherever you are in that, I pray you know His grace is for you. There is grace. Stop carrying that burden of guilt and shame. Don't allow the enemy any more wins or victory over that. But maybe you'd come this morning and as a husband and wife, you would come and Maybe you'd bend a knee and just say, we're going to reclaim our marriage. Maybe your marriage is going really good. Maybe everything's great. Then maybe you'd come and say, Lord, help us to stay the course. Help us to keep you in the center. Help us to keep you as the main focus. And may we individually focus on our mission for you. If you're here this morning and you're married and you've put your husband or your wife on a pedestal, you think they're just just lifting them so high. Maybe you'd come and you'd say, Lord, give me the right perspective on this, that I would honor my spouse. And yes, Lord, think highly of them. But is my spouse becoming an idol in my life? Is it, is it more about pleasing my spouse than it is about pleasing you? And whatever way that God is speaking to you, maybe you would just come and bend a knee and say, God, I want you to be Lord of my life. If you don't know Christ, maybe you'd come and ask him to save you repent of your sins. You can do it there in your seats, just between you and God in the stillness of your heart. You can ask him to, to save you. Whatever it is that God is doing, would you just respond? Father, bless now this invitation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we're led in a song of imitation? Would you respond? Would you come and pray and ask God to keep that center, Jesus Christ, in your marriage? However he's leading, would you respond this morning?